Welcome to Twill, we can help lower the podcast of record for the discussion of health or policy. I'm recording this episode on November 14th, 2018. Today's topic is AI and the practice of medicine. And I've assembled an all-star cast to discuss this. So uh, let's go around the room and they'll introduce themselves. So Terry D, I am a litigation partner in Chicago. I am the uh, co-chair of the products liability group for the firm. I uh, chair the uh, Chicago litigation practice and I am a global chair of pro bono. And I'm Cheyenne Chen. I am a partner in the Washington DC office at McDermott, Will & Emery, uh, where my practice heavily intersects with digital health and uh, data privacy and uh, data strategies. Kate McDonald, a partner in the DC office of McDermott, Will & Emery. I um, work in the healthcare industry and primarily focus my practice on work with health plans, uh, PBMs, intermediaries that operate um, in the healthcare payment reimbursement space. I'm Dale Vandemark, partner in the DC office in the healthcare group, and I do a lot of strategic transactions in the healthcare industry, as well as work with uh, digital health programs and companies to deploy their technology. I'm Eric Fish, the Senior Vice President of Legal Services for the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is the umbrella organization of all 70 medical and osteopathic boards uh, that are convened by the states to practice, to regulate the practice of medicine. Aside from doing general counsel duties, I'm also part of our advocacy team uh, looking at best practices and developments in health law. Welcome to you all. First time Twillers, you all, and it's great to have you. Let's start with those last two voices, uh, Dale and Eric, and explain for the listeners why we're in a beautiful conference room in a beautiful building in Washington, D.C., assembled together. Eric and I uh, have known each other for quite some time and have worked together on technology issues in healthcare. Uh, we're, We're spoken a lot, I should say, about technology issues in healthcare for quite some time. I had the opportunity to speak at the annual meeting of the Federation of State Medical Boards on the topic of digital health. And out of that participation, Eric and I began to talk more about the unique issues associated with artificial intelligence uh, in healthcare and the interest of the medical boards in educating themselves more on the subject. So when it came to uh, their regulatory responsibility, that they were acting from a position of knowledge and understanding as opposed to you know trying to pick it up as things develop and as things evolve. He and I talked about the different conferences that we had been to uh, that were available, focusing on digital health as well as artificial intelligence and health, and agreed that there didn't seem to be that many programs that really went deep into the subject when it comes to what I frequently just kind of shorthand refer to as the clinical tools in the, in the sector, uh, and that we really needed some discussion around that and really how these types of technology impact the way patients engage with the healthcare system, engage with their own health, as well as the way that physicians engage with other physicians as well as their patients, and also what these tools may mean just simply for the practice of medicine when you have, for example, image uh, artificial intelligence tools that operate at a, uh, you know, doing some very narrow uh, functions, but operating at the same level or higher level right, than board certified physicians. This can really change a lot of the dynamics at work and by implication really change the way that uh, regulators like the medical boards look at their own jobs, look at their own regulatory infrastructure uh, and, and uh, uh, impact the way that they develop those structures going forward. I think as Dale 
noted, we're at an intersection of innovation and regulation. And uh, to be ahead of the curve for the regulators will be important. In the past five years, the Federation of State Medical Boards worked on developing new telemedicine policies, uh, worked alongside our state medical boards on the Interstate Medical License Compact, which has reduced a lot of the, the burdens around licensing and credentialing applications. Uh, but those are all kind of lagging uh, indicator projects in that we're responding to where the market is. I think this is one of the first times where we as an organization have tried to think ahead of the curve of where medicine is going to be going and how artificial intelligence and other technologies will impact the practice of medicine and more importantly, how it's going to impact the regulatory state in the fact that the practice of medicine may change and with it may change some roles and responsibilities of physicians and other other people within that sphere. And we need to start thinking about first principles, who's accountable, who's responsible, uh, and at the end of the day, how we can make innovation be part of uh, healthcare in a way that helps the patient, but also doesn't sacrifice the patient. It's such a massive subject, but I, I, I guess one way of starting to sort of unpack it is to try and ask ask ourselves the question is, why are we wanting to regulate? What, what are the imperatives that are, that are bringing us around <laughs> the table that unite medical boards and uh, regulators, uh, uh, policymakers? What what are, what are the issues that were that concern us when it comes to AI? And I, I guess there's got to be a data piece here that is one of our concerns. Absolutely. And I think the novel considerations that AI in particular uh, brings to the table is just, well, twofold. One is just the sheer volume of data, right? That uh, the development as well as the actual use of artificial intelligence solutions requires. Um, when it comes to teaching a computer or a piece of software about how to make decisions on sort of an automated basis or just uh, in a way that you, I guess, to, to put it in layperson's terms, how a human would, would think about it, you really need to teach it um, just such a wide array of use cases, but then also have to have data to then help that computer, that piece of software, learn the rules, the schema, right? Um, and that then raises all sorts of questions about how you properly get that data in how you adequately secure it, um, and whether or not that also disrupts certain traditional notions of privacy that, that we've been used to uh, dealing with, especially because we tend to think, at least in the privacy bar, about uh, discrete uses of data, right? You regulate every distinct moment um, of, of touching data, accessing the data, using it. Whereas with artificial intelligence, the data almost becomes part and parcel of the technology. You can't really separate it from uh, from the solution, and that really does present some some unique challenges. And I think where uh, the Federation of State Medical Boards and, and other regulators can really be helpful here um, in helping us think through the, the path forward for these kinds of technologies is um, they're going to be setting potentially that the policy bases on which then regulators like the Office for Civil Rights, state privacy regulators, um, regulators in the EU, um, our friends across the that have been so active in regulating privacy um, and thinking through then what are the ways in which clinicians and other care providers need to access data in, in connection with using these products, whether or not there needs to be certain information that's fed back into these solutions on an ongoing 
basis. The development doesn't necessarily stop when the product is rolled out in the market. Um, and those kinds of decisions by the FSMB, for example, can then shape the ways in which perhaps HHS and, and other agencies might want to then uh, amend or update how we regulate and think about privacy. Getting that sense of how AI and ML and data sort of fit together. I mean, I've, I've loosely described it as a sort of technology to duck it, right? Um, and and it, it's that kind of sort of complex uh, interrelationship, I think. And of course, uh, as well as your, your uh, observation about uh, uh, the different sort of data challenges, uh, we also have different data domains um, in that some of the data, some of the AI may well be existing outside of what we view as traditional healthcare space and therefore traditional healthcare regulation. Absolutely. And I think that then ties into a broader question about um, how in the US, similar to perhaps similar to how things are starting to evolve in, in the EU, whether or not um, you know, there needs to be a broader, more unified standard for regulating privacy, given just the different dimensions of data that AI machine learning solutions might require. It's not just limited to health information. So Terry, what, uh, we, we have a data protection issue, clearly. What other sort of high-level concerns do we have about AI and ML is it intersects with uh, with meds right so you you mentioned uh, why do we want to regulate well the the tort system will will regulate whether we like it or not <laughs> uh, and that will come from the plaintiffs lawyers but ultimately the issue is patient safety so um, and in, in in the case of tort law and and how that plays out here um, it really will lag and it is lagging far behind the technology as it does in, in every aspect of of uh, advancements in technology we we have far more questions right now than we have answers. The courts have not really addressed the issues about how uh, AI will impact um, uh, medical malpractice claims, product liability claims. And I think there are two important issues here for, for physicians. And, and Dale alluded to it when he talked about how the, when the technology will far surpass uh, in terms of its decision making, um, the knowledge and skills of the physician itself. So at what point does the standard of care for physicians get subsumed? by the the artificial intelligence itself. Uh, I think at at, at this point... and I think this is how the law will treat AI as not supplanting decision of the of the, the judgment and the independent judgment of the physicians. Physicians will always be the the final decision maker and and exercise his or her independent judgment about what proper diagnosis is, what the proper treatment is. And it'll be more a factor of how the physicians use the AI. And there there will be some risk allocation issues though. Um, how much of the to the extent you do have AI that can take over diagnostic decisions and analyses that doctors used to do and and can completely take that over does the doctor is now going to be using that tool if something goes wrong is that going to be the doctor's fault for using that tool or is it going to shift now to the manufacturers of the AI tool and there's a whole set of complications within that that have to be uh, figured out and that is okay well is it the manufacturer of the AI uh, device is it the, the the developers of the algorithms that drive that AI device traditionally software 
software is not subject to strict liability and services are not subject to strict liability. It's a negligence standard. Products are subject to strict liability. So how's that going to be worked out when you've got software and algorithms that are so intricately intertwined into the device itself? Uh, well, that suddenly become subject to strict liability. And then it's not just the developers, the algorithms, it's those who train the machine, uh, the, the algorithms to, to learn. What will their role be? So there are a lot of issues here that uh, have to be worked out, but have to be thought through by practitioners and developers of medical devices together. Of course, one of the, the, the great oddities of the US healthcare system is that the most important player in the room is the one that has the money and does the reimbursement. And so to some extent, the regulation, the adoption, the implementation of AI is going to be less about decision made, decisions made by providers or let alone decisions made by patients, but decisions made by insurance companies, both public and private. And I, I wonder, Kate, if you could could give us kind of a, an, an overview of, of, of how you're seeing that play out. Absolutely. And that's a great point. I mean, I would say that in the discussion of regulation, the health insurers and other payers, they're not regulators per se, but they essentially function as regulators in that they control um, payment streams for a lot of these AI applications. And, you know, in the infancy of AI and, you know, these initial stages as it starts to develop, um, you know, there are other funding sources, but ultimately, um, I think, you know, in order for a lot of these applications to be sustainable, um, getting incorporated into that mainstream manner in which healthcare products and services are paid for is going to be critical. And at this initial stage, um, you know, I think AI applications are incorporated into what physicians and hospitals do in sort of a supportive function in many contexts. And in that way, you know, can be kind of incorporated into the traditional payment streams for those services. Um, There's also a unique um, phenomenon that's going on where I think a lot of AI applications right now are, and probably for, you know, the next several years are... um, fitting into a sort of care management function with health insurers. And so health insurers um, in the United States um, across really all of the markets now have medical loss ratio requirements. Um, And uh, one unique thing about, you know, or a nuance of that um, is that, you know, this uh, constrains what health insurers want to spend on administrative costs, right? And they want to spend more of their money, more of the premium dollars on medical expenses. But in the Uh, the numerator of the MLR, so at the same level as medical expenses, are also quality improvement um, costs. And so what that means is that health insurers have the opportunity to pay for a lot of AI applications that they may not pay for as a direct reimbursable medical expense or as a, you know, they may not say that that encounter with the mental health chatbot is an encounter, you know, with a clinician that we're going to reimburse as such, but they may provide access to that as a screening tool to their members and pay for it as a care management tool and in in an effort to improve quality can in- include it in their MLR numerator. And so I think that that's a pathway that's available right now, but ultimately I think the next frontier is sort of figuring out, you know, going beyond that. So, right, there's only so much money to spend on those care management initiatives and ultimately the tech 
test will always be, you know, is it really saving money for the insurer? Because that's their financial incentive is to to save money. But it's interesting that you use that phrase pathway. <laughs> Another way you could perhaps describe that is path dependence, right? That what mm-hmm. what they're doing is trying to pigeonhole <laughs> AI uh, given our existing sort of regulatory language or, or reimbursement language. And Eric, for me, the ultimate pigeonhole is quote the practice of medicine. And I, and I wonder how you would reflect on the practice of medicine in this context. Is this a viable concept moving forward or do we have to either replace it or carefully sort of disaggregate? I think Kate hit upon a uh, important part there where this is always, AI is being thought of as just another tool of technology that's used in a clinical setting. Uh, I think, however, where we're going to go is that technology is going to reform what practice of medicine actually is. And that's going to change how we look at definitions related to the practice of medicine. Uh, Terry raised some some great points about patient safety and accountability and responsibility. Who do you hold accountable? Who's actually doing the diagnosis? Does that person need to have a uh, a medical degree or a license to practice medicine? At what point do we cross that threshold? And these are going to be questions that will emerge in the future. And being ahead of them right now, I think will set a stage where we're proactively regulating how this will happen and not waiting for the tort system or the current regulatory approach that's complaint-based to correct the market failures that might exist. So what kinds of questions, Eric, and then I'm going to ask exactly the same question of Dale with regard to his clients. But what kind of questions are, the, are your members asking? The, the sort of the more specific questions about AI and ML. I, I think one of the initial questions that uh, state medical boards will have to deal with is what does it mean to diagnose or what does it mean to have that patient encounter? Uh, we just mentioned sort of chatbots. Uh, we have to look at what the public perception of that encounter is. Is it actually is the public actually thinking they're talking to a doctor? And if so, are there certain standards that go along with that? Uh, as we just look at how these technologies develop, one of the things that I think is important is we just got to go back to the first principles of what are we trying to do? Regulate for patient safety. And can we do it in a way that doesn't hamper some of the innovations that could come out? If we treat technology the same as we've treated it in the past, I don't think we're going to have a sustainable model. There will always be a tension between regulation and innovation. But if we go back to the idea of what we're trying to do, why medical boards exist and why innovation is important in healthcare, I think we can answer those questions. Dale, your your clients, what, what are the questions? I guess everything from drug regulation, from uh, drug research compliance, device makers, what, what are the hot topics? I think it depends on the specific client, what they're, what they're looking at. But there has been for a while a pretty significant issue really relates to the role of the FDA. How's the FDA going to treat this product? Should we go and try to get this product cleared for a certain uh, for a certain use? Should we not? How does that fit in with a you know an overall business strategy? Which markets are we going to attack first? How are we going to sequence through those to other markets? How do we ultimately get to reimbursement under Medicare, Medicaid, private insurers? Those sorts of questions are asked a lot. Goes to your point about pathways, right? That we have a system in place that is highly regulated, not just in terms of think of traditional regulation around safety we have a regulatory system when it comes to just how we pay for things and what we what we pay for so the business models associated with the products are really front and center in people's minds and so you always have those those questions about how you get to the different markets and FDA is a, is a big part of that once you get beyond that there are questions about how to attack the insurance and the employer uh, sponsored plan markets who do we talk to we talk to the right people uh, or are we just going to be banging our heads against the wall in speaking with the people we're talking to? But I think fundamentally, the questions that we get asked 
are really around risk. Where is the risk in the deployment and how do we avoid it? And that goes from things like the TCPA, and there's pending litigation in healthcare right now, TCPA, uh, all the way to issues related to liability, right? Who's going to get sued and, and for what? And of course, we're in a period of uncertainty with respect to a fair, a fair number of those areas. And that also kind of full circle kind of brings us back to why we're having this conference. I think one of the things that has bothered me about the development of technology as a general matter is that it has frequently sidestepped thinking very carefully about how the technology will be deployed, particularly in the clinical side. And there has not been enough focus and attention on the role of physicians, the role of the medical boards in that, call it that last mile of deployment. So there's all of this planning around getting through FDA, all this planning around getting to a payer, all this planning around putting up the, you know, how I'm going to manage risk through consents and waivers and all of those things. But ultimately, if you're going to have any business plan, this stuff has to be deployed. And the way it's going to get deployed is really going to be in the hands of the consumers of that technology, which ultimately in the healthcare sector fall down into the physician's hands, right? And so for for me, I try to direct my clients to thinking about those issues as soon as they as soon as they can. Because ultimately if they don't have a product that a physician can't feel confident about working with, their business model is capped, right? They yeah. ultimately can go so far but but no further. And to really get integrated into the healthcare system really need to have a product that's going to be something that physicians can be. It's tremendous at a conference like this or others that I've been to recently, thinking and talking about AI and ML in relatively conceptual abstract terms. But do you think to an extent the the regulatory issues need to sort of uh, blossom? You know, there needs to be some sort of killer app that comes forward that focuses people's attention. I mean, for a while, I thought the um, the Cetasys anesthesia robot uh, might have been uh, that sort of killer. Well, hopefully not. Um, <laughs> Terry's voice. Um, but a uh, real sort of uh, breakthrough app that would have concentrated our attention and try to figure out, we really need to get this right. Whereas it's quite difficult, I think, more appropriate, but more difficult to deal with at an abstract level. I, I think that's right. I don't think that there is going to be a tool or technology that captures people's attention uh, because the healthcare system that we have and the way the technology is being deployed, it's uh, it's very cushioning, right? It's not, we, we don't have a system that is crystal. It doesn't, you know, shatter. Things happen, it gets absorbed, the system modulates itself slightly, people get used to it and, and you move forward. I think that the, the way this is going to come to a head is uh, really going to be more in, in Terry's field where, where we're going to, something bad is going to happen and people are going to sit back and say, okay, why did that bad thing happen? And hopefully there won't be you know, a knee-jerk reaction to address what maybe is perceived as the politically sensitive issue, as opposed to a reaction that really gets underneath and says, hey, we need to think about this. It's my hope, however, that agencies like FDA, that the state medical boards, to a certain degree, also CMS and, and, and other groups, are focused enough on the digital health sector that they adopt policies that avoid the, not necessarily the bad result that could occur, but avoid the 
bad reaction to the bad result. I don't know if I have particularly high hopes about it, but I but you know the FDA, as you know, has been very active in trying to think ahead of the curve when it comes to digital health. Conferences like this with the with the medical boards, I think, are very helpful to get their head into the game. And if these sorts of discussions and conferences and thinking can result in an appropriate shift to the regulatory perspective to be more focused on the way that this technology can really impact fundamentally things like the practice of medicine. The more we're going to have a system that's going to be able to respond to those bad events in a constructive way, as opposed to a really a restrictive. Just in terms of the, the good news and bad news on what Dale said is it's probably going to be something bad that happens that triggers um, you know public interest on, on this. I don't know if that's necessarily going to come in the healthcare field. I think we're going to see it more quickly, and we already are seeing it in uh, automobiles and mm-hmm. other, other contexts where people are willing to jump into AI uh, and adopt it a little quicker than maybe with than they would with respect to their personal health. Just in the last couple of minutes that we've got together, let me ask uh, one question of you all. Um, and so, of course, the answer will get harder as, 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 as we move <laughs> clockwise here. But Terry, I'm going to start with you because... Good, that's in, easy. <laughs> in your opening statement, you used the word always. You said that it will always be the physician who's making decisions. So my closing question is, are you going to stick with that if we were seated here again in five years time or maybe 10 years time? So what do you think projecting forward uh, that we're going to be talking about? So I think it, it, my term for always is that at the end of the day, ultimately what happens with a patient um, in terms of diagnosis and treatment will still be the physician's call. There will be aspects of what uh, of um, analytical decisions that doctors Doctors make now that actually will be taken over by, um, if not uh, in whole, at least in large part, by AI devices. And uh, and it, it, but but ultimately, when it comes down to what treatment is, what the diagnosis is for a patient, it's going to be the doctor taking into account all that the doctor's experience tells him or her, all the training tells him or her, and what uh, tools tell him or her, like the AI tools. So I think while parts of the practice, like in other professions, will be made easier and, and uh, were made almost automated by, by AI, the ultimate decision would be the physicians. John, what's data going to look like? Uh, data protection? <laughs> that's that's a great question. I, I don't know that I can frankly answer that because things are just moving so quickly and there has been just so much focus recently about whether or not our current privacy regime is enough or, or whether it really needs to get, get modernized. I think to, to your question though about how it's going to look in five, ten years, I do think that there is is um, an ongoing effort by regulators to really engage with the industry in this space because they they know that this is novel and that they need to learn. And I do think that there has been uh, very good progress in terms of open dialogue between uh, the manufacturers, the clinicians, um, and the other stakeholders in this space to kind of educate one another um, about how things might need to to adapt. I would suspect, though, ultimately, that um, I, I guess I would be surprised if from a privacy standpoint, things would really meaningfully change um, in, in the next few years. I think we're, it's slowly moving there. Uh, but I think that uh, to 
kind of Terry's point, we we're going to need to see something a little bit more discreet or impactful uh, to really get the ball rolling. But I do think at this point, it's it's a little bit iterative, and, and we are seeing some important dialogue. So as you mentioned, uh, in regard to an earlier question, the importance of the GDPR, and if the center of gravity of privacy really does cross the Atlantic, maybe it's already crossed, and we start seeing major decisions there, and major US firms saying we're going to follow the European guidelines, then we're sort of going to backdoor into a European system sort of imported here, maybe through transitional moves like the new California Mm -hmm. privacy statute. So Kate, I was was actually thinking of of not asking you uh, during this round, because in 10 years time, we're not going to have third party reimbursement. We're going (laughs) to have right and federally funded coverage for all. But just in case I'm wrong. (laughs) Which, by the way, is not that different from what we have now. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, to Terry's point, I think just the way I envision things playing out, I I might disagree. I might say I think that, um, and I think what's critical is I don't think that healthcare payers will stand in the way of AI replacing physicians in certain contexts. I think that with you know physician shortages, really poor access to critical preventative and primary care throughout this country, out of control costs, um, and the improved capabilities of AI over time, where you know AI applications may be demonstrated to make better decisions than um, physicians in some circumstances. I think that I think that healthcare payers would be you know open to moving to a world where they actually are reimbursing for medical services, medical encounters with AI applications, just like they would for hospitals and physicians. So kind of agnostic. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm big on two maybe opposite ends of the spectrum of AI technology and healthcare. One is the very narrow image reading tools that are proving themselves to be very effective at looking at uh, lesions on skins and MRI scans and determining whether things are bad or really bad. But also on the kind of the other end, the chatbot side, those initial kind of uh, early triage uh, uh, technologies that are developing here. I think in five to 10 years time, what we will be talking about is uh, how effectively the U.S. healthcare system has been adopting those narrow AI functions as uh, support tools for the practice of medicine, that physicians will use those tools if they prove themselves to be effective, to be more efficient in the jobs that they do, to narrow the things that they have to focus on because the AI tool can help them quickly um, uh, get rid of uh, a lot of things that they don't need to pay attention to. Um, And I think we're also going to be talking about whether uh, in the United States, States, we should be more accepting of that chatbot te- technology that is being deployed with remarkable success in uh, other jurisdictions where access to care is, is a serious issue, such as India, large parts of Africa mm-hmm. and Asia, where this technology will be deployed, uh, will be doing diagnostics, uh, and will be uh, functioning like an artificial doctor in a lot of circumstances. Uh, and I think we're going to find ourselves at a point where we're forced to answer the question, are, yeah, are we going to accept an artificial doctor, you know, quote, doctor? Uh, and that great book a few years ago would have with the first world buy a third year, third world medical uh, device or product. Right, exactly. And I, and I think that that's the conversation we'll be having in probably 10 years. Eric, lots more to say. I think uh, to your question about will the physician always be the center of care and be responsible? Uh, we have at the Federation of State Medical Boards have taken a look at this question and 
started to develop standards around team-based care. We're seeing that more and more in, in the clinical setting. And the team-based setting uh, has roles and responsibilities that have to be allocated and upheld and enforced. Uh, so I think we have to look at it both ways, the physician being the center, but also this being deployed in a team setting. I think if the doctor is ultimately going to be held responsible in sort of the model that Terry held out, that raises a lot of questions for state medical boards uh, and, and also the medical community in general related to standards of competence. Uh, do we need to change what medical education looks like? Part of the standards for the practice of medicine are the ability to explain to a patient why you're coming to a certain diagnosis or treatment plan. If it's being done within a black box, uh, a physician may not be able to readily or have that discussion with their patient. Well, they, have they tripped certain barriers in the practice of medicine standards that are out there? We need to answer those questions. I think it also goes to sort of questions of how this is going to be deployed internationally. Uh, do we need to look at international licensure? Do we need to look at having standards across the board on, on these principled questions related to AI so that if a system is deployed worldwide, it's not going to be sort of fragmented in each time it's deployed. Are there other certain things that should be the third rails that are trip lines, no matter where you are, whatever state you're in, uh, in whatever setting that you're going to be using it. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to all the participants, Terry, Gian, uh, Kate, Dale, Eric. Uh, I don't think any of you are individually on Twitter, apart from Dale, who can be found at Dale Vandermark. That's right. And, and I am as well, Eric M. Fish. There are several Eric Fishes actually that are lawyers in DC, I learned. So I had to throw the middle initial in there. <laughs> Show notes will be at twill.com. I'm Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.